people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What. My name is Sam. I'm joined by Alex. Hello, and we are very happy to be here with Ronan Lorimer who is um, a, a writer and author uh, of plays, poems, uh, a member of uh, the EndNotes Collective. And she's written a really fantastic article about Eric Zamor, which will be linked in the show notes. So Eric Zamor, if you're not aware, is a candidate for the French presidential election. Uh, he's a far-right candidate and um, has been a kind of a pundit uh, for you know kind of some decades now on the French far-right, essentially normalising or uh, making more prominent uh, some of the French far right talking points without joining uh, the Rassemblement National or the French National um, in the process. So he's kind of a, this outsider figure to the French far right in its establishment form, but nevertheless is uh, increasingly prominent. So, Rona, could you just briefly sketch what is Zamor's worldview? What does he believe in a very, very general sense? Well, I think he's a fascist. Uh, and, um, you know, he's a. Uh, he's more economically liberal than somebody like Marine Le Pen, who's arguing for more social policies. So I think actually, despite what Zamor is saying now about um, like the welfare state, he's actually against any kind of social welfare state. Um, Although now he's transformed that into a kind of discourse about uh, national preference. So the idea that there's a limited amount of resources in a, in a country and that they that these resources should be conserved for the, the natives of the, that country. Um, and so he's kind of most famous for talking about things within a kind of culture wars. He talks about a clash of civilizations, like the idea that um, Islam is ir- irreconcilable with the West. Um, and he's pretty obsessed with, you know, he's kind of like an old reactionary who hates 1968 and he thinks the legacy of 1968 has been to destroy the family um, and bring about lots of like single mother families um, and absent fathers, which has led to a kind of feminization of of men, he says, and he's been saying that since like the late 90s. Um, So he's very anti-feminist and he's kind of, I would say he's like a traditionalist. And the thing that interests me with him as opposed to kind of more central right figures in France as he's kind of, I'd say like anti-enlightenment. Um, and so when he's arguing against uh, Islam, it's not coming squarely from this Republican position about like a kind of secular state. It, it's, it's sort of, um, it's, yeah, he's not arguing for kind of un- universalist enlightenment kind of thing. And that seems to be what sets him apart. Do you think that the other parts of the French far right are broadly still in arguing for a universalist enlightenment position that nevertheless includes France as its kind of principal uh, kind of object? Not necessarily the far right, because I think some bits of the far right, like someone like Fillon, that he would be quite close to in terms of like views on the economy um, or, or like the let's say that the far right, lots of bits of it are uh, monarchists. So then you could say that they're anti-enlightenment in that sense, anti-French enlightenment, but certainly um, the ministers who are, I think, center right under Macron, who have brought in this new separatism law, it's kind of in the name of a French secular identity and this kind of universalist project. As the far right see the world as kind of degrading more and more and more, the position they think we should return to gets further and further back in time, right? So. Um, Zamor has kind of 
railed against uh, like what he sees as kind of political correctness and like anti-racist culture uh, in the 1980s. Um, he says he sh- he thought one of his uh, lines from a while back was that he thought that uh, they should put anti-racism on trial because in fact it was simply the successor ideology to uh, communism. Um, and then you said again he's kind of a you know anti 68er and then like again it seems kind of pushing further and further back into anti enlightenment and so on um there are other members of the French far right who are perhaps even more radical uh people like Alain de Benoit who's a part of the Nouvelle Droite the new right in France who um oppose the Christianization of Europe right that's the point at which everything kind of like falls down from or that's the kind of the point at which uh, everything starts to kind of tend um downwards is there a tendency in Zemmour over time that his views become more radical or less radical? Or what are the kind of dynamics inside Zemmour's worldview, do you think? I don't think his worldview has changed um, very much, but the terms in, under which he's arguing have changed. So when I was reading his book, uh, which is called Le Premier Sex, like the first sex, which is against Simone de Beauvoir's second sex, um, he, you know, he's writing that in 2006 and it's in this kind of, culture war it's it's the legacy of the 90s uh sort of anti-political correctness you can't say anything anymore and now of course that debate's shifted a bit and it's what we call cancel culture or or woke it's you know it's more framed in a kind of anti-woke um sense and so i found that when he was um writing that he was kind of close to people like melanie phillips who were talking in those terms and now he's you know he's close to any old uh, anti-woke I don't think he's changed so much in the, um, for example, like in when he first comes in as a journalist in the 90s, he's arguing for a union of the right um, and he supports Jean-Marie Le Pen and he's kind of saying that there needs to be a kind of coalition of the broad spectrum of the right to be able to get um, elected and that's exactly what he's trying to do now in this election, although some people think that he's not anymore aiming to be president, he's actually kind of aiming for the aftermath of the election he wants to be maybe prime minister under Pécresse or or something like that so I think even in kind of quite concrete uh parliamentary logic he hasn't changed uh, very much do you rate his chances of doing that of becoming prime minister um yeah maybe of becoming prime minister I mean I'm I'm really not it seems to change all the time I mean a couple of weeks ago I thought he actually had quite a good chance of um rallying this union of the right because he there there are constantly these kind of politicians who are desisting from the rn and and joining him but it's it's very unclear i mean he's got much more support than someone like Filippo, who just has one signature but i believe he still doesn't have enough signatures i'd have to check that he's got a lot of um what's very impressive about his campaign is the amount of funding he has and he's got much more funding than someone like Macron, who also had like put a party together at the last minute for the last election, had at this stage, like he's got about as much as Macron had uh, one month from the election. And he's got way more than, than Mélenchon in terms of money. So, so he's got a backing of like quite top industrialists and kind of tech people in France. So maybe that will help his campaign. And I kind of think the more public support he has, the more people might um, make a wager on him, but I'm not sure. You, you write in your article about how he's attracting a lot of the harder right elements of the RN now that Marilyn Le Pen is kind of positioning toward, more towards the centre. How 
how is this the case, considering if you kind of look at the guy, he's not exactly this kind of strapping figure of masculinity that he kind of pro- would probably want to pro- project. And also he's Jewish and a practicing Jew. How is it that um, these kind of really far-right constituencies can look, look past those kind of things? I think, like, it sort of shows that um, masculinity and maybe even whiteness is kind of uh, discursive. So he manages to embody these things by by saying them. And, you know, most of his success is, like, being able to say things. He's a kind of outsider figure. And... Um, and so he's been saying these things for years and getting them into the kind of mainstream um, kind of, yeah, into, into sort of television. And that's, in, that's had its influence on um, the center right or the more traditional right and even the center like Macron. So even last week, Valérie Pécresse, who's supposed to be more moderate than he is, you know, she's with the Republicans. She uh, mentioned the great, the great replacement um, but yeah, anyway, how he he's he's the, the the RN is in the kind of crisis because Marine Le Pen made this kind of dive for for more, more of the right rather than the far right. And so she although she's personally against gay marriage, she has a lot of kind of gay deputies. She's been kind of pinkwashing her party. She tries to cloak what she's doing in a kind of like social welfare discourse, which is a bit like Zamor's anyway, because it's about national preference. But she has become more moderate and she's kind of distanced herself from her niece and her father. And so, and I think also a lot of voters, I mean, it's really quite, seems very improbable and stupid, but I think they would probably rather vote for somebody who's, extremely racist and unfortunately a Jew but very kind of macho and straight talking guy then vote for this woman who seems to be kind of pandering to a, a more centrist position and so I think she made she made a kind of miscalculation because although she's aiming to broaden the reach of her party with the center actually her voters in the last few years have gone further to the right so she's kind of she's made a she's made a gamble on them sort of staying loyal to the party she'll probably can like I imagine she would probably can be able to conserve the the working class um like most of the working class vote for the FN for the RN but um but there are other elements more aristocratic elements more younger elements as well like people who are online on these kind of forums and there's also this thing with the the RN I'm not so uh well versed in this but I think um you know their strategy the strategy of the far right usually is to like split from the rn in between elections and then like gather back together when it comes to the, you know pushing someone like marine le pen through and so it's like a kind of crucial moment where they're actually going somewhere else you mentioned the kind of the the pinkwashing of the rn and that's really interesting the kind of the far right project of the rn is kind of um, concealed by lots of different discourses, right? It's concealed by as, as kind of pinkwashing. It's also in the past been a kind of greenwashing. There's the new ecology movement that was uh, uh, tries to propose that France has, um, you know, as you were saying before, which is kind of this interesting crossover, perhaps. I don't know, maybe you'll, um, you could tell me um, between uh, the idea that France has a kind of limited and a finite number of resources must be con- must be conserved for the French and um, that, that appears in New Ecology. It also seems to appear in Eric Zemmour's um, thought as well. And I'm kind of wondering, do you think that there is a kind, is this the response that the French far right will make 
two things, two discourses of climate change and so on, given that they have to kind of in some way accommodate it, but nevertheless um, reject all of its kind of, uh, di- its uh, you know, rejection of the uh, demand that people shut down, um, you know, fossil fuel infrastructure, which is of course not as operative in France anyway, because it has um, you know, 75% nuclear power. So is this the kind of the way in which do you think that Zemmour and Le Pen will accommodate ecological discourse? The national preference discourse seems to be more around things like the kind of French um, welfare state. So I'm not so sure about ecology, but, um, you know, it's it's actually really interesting. It's I read an article about it a couple of months ago. It's, it's a discourse that comes in with someone who then joins the FN, so in the 80s, and he comes up with this idea of national preference, which is a way of... Um, it's a way of uh, like cleaning up just pure nationalism. So it pretends that, first of all, it pretends that the far right wants to conserve a social state. And secondly, it pretends that, you know, they're really welcoming migrants, but just there's too many and um, there's not enough to go around. And I have a suspicion that it comes in at this moment when um, Mitterrand puts basically the whole of the third generation of Algerians on unemployment. So he deindustrializes the factories. And so the demands of anti-racist movements um, come to be around um, like getting social housing and having proper benefits and stuff like that. And so I think I I I'm, don't know if it's true, but I think that that's that's why that discourse comes in at that point. Um, and so yeah, Marine Le Pen has been kind of trying to get working class votes through you know, like in the, in the last election, what it was is like people who'd formerly been in the Communist Party were voting for her. Another way that she's done this kind of washing thing as well is that she's like appealed to uh, Zionists. And so she has, you know, she has Zionists in her party and so on. But I'm not quite sure how, I'm not sure how um, Zamor has related his discourse to ecology um, specifically. Maybe you, maybe you know, I no, I, I know about the the RN's ecological discourse, but not about the because after after we wrote about it, uh, Zamor appeared. So uh, yeah, it's it's some ways out of date anyway. Um, Zamor has been using the national preference uh, discourse in in his last interview on live radio. He spoke a lot about social housing, and he said he would get rid of this this kind of law or statute that aims to create more social housing, and he claimed that. Social housing is filled entirely by by migrants, which is not true. Um, and so he said, if if I get rid of the the capacity to build social housing, then we won't have migrants in social housing anymore. And he's been, you know, he rarely says anything about the pandemic, although he did review in this, he did um, reveal in this interview that he um, he he would continue with measures actually, which is quite unusual for a far right. Um, politician but he most of his discourse about the pandemic has been about like hospitals overflowing with only migrants which meant that people couldn't uh, use the resources and um and then if you if you watch his campaign video um it's all kind of really busy streets um waiting like kind of queues like people waiting in line for things like he's got this kind of discourse about things are too full you know and and this is his like great replacement stuff coming in again, of course. There's a there's a, a rising Islamophobia in France in general. Um, how, how much is 
is the most successful reflection of that, or do you think he's played a role in in creating this kind of uh, this kind of culture? Totally. I mean, the, there was a real spike in Islamophobia, um, like in two thousand and nineteen, around the time when the pension strike started. I remember. I think a mother wearing a hijab had accompanied a school trip to the Assemblée Nationale or something like that. And she'd been like told to remove her veil or chucked out. I can't quite remember. And then there was this kind of like fury of, of um, stuff around that on, on, on television and on, on these kind of, you know, there are, there are these kind of news stations in France that are not really news stations at all. They all provide comment like BFM TV, which is this like highly populous media. And that's, actually when I personally first heard of Zamor because he was constantly um, given airtime. And and um, so I think he has really, really contributed, although he's been banging on about it since, since the 90s. And it's, I was quite, I was listening to the, ra- the radio, this radio interview with him, which was like at 7 a.m. on one of the biggest radio um, networks, France Inter. And he not only says that, um communities of of muslims uh in france is a situation that doesn't work he also says like everywhere in the world where you have community of communities of muslims it's a problem he says in africa for example so it seems to me that he wants to eradicate muslims from the entire world and it's not just a question of like french sovereignty it's really quite quite ex- like even more extreme than lots of uh kind of ethno-separatist, because I think he's kind of an ethno-separatist in the sense that he talks about, you know, certain cultures not working together, but whereas other ethno-separatists try to say that they appreciate all cultures, but they need to stay in their place, you know, he's, he he was on the radio saying, you know, um, but yeah, I do think, I do think his persistent hatred of of Muslims has contributed um, and given voice to that kind of phenomenon, but then, of course, I don't know how exactly that, to explain this rise in Islamophobia. It's like, um, of course, there's been quite persistent terrorist attacks. Um, there's also the discourse about the veil. There's this kind of aggressive French secularism. And it has definitely intensified in the last five years and especially in the last two years. And now there's actual laws which which are kind of enacting that. So, yeah. What's happened in the last two years? I mean, so there's introduction of laws, but like, what what do you think has triggered that? Is that during the pandemic? Is that is that about this national preference discourse? Um, well, there was this frenzy about the veil in 2019, um, and then I'm just thinking what were the main kind of events. Um, there was um, the murder of Samuel Paty, which. Um, yeah. Who was a who was a um, school teacher who was murdered by not one of his students but somebody who'd heard about him um, showing um, Islamophobic cartoons in a in in the context of a, a class uh, in which he'd said that if people didn't want to see the, these images they could leave the room and then there was a kind of parent forum that complained about this and this. Kind of went a bit viral and this um terrorist came and uh, beheaded him outside of the school 
And so Macron decided to lean in on this, um, this event and um, kind of write, write this man into, into history as a kind of French hero. And there was this idea that teachers are no longer free to say what they want or to teach and that they're in danger. And then um, subsequently, Darmanin drafted two laws which were like very much interconnected, which, um, which I wrote about, one of which really bolsters um, the capacity of police officers to like act with impunity and, and be able to, you know, um, be able to like defend themselves. And it, it circulates around this idea of the, the police as victims. And the other side of this law, you know, both are drafted by Darmanin, um, is the law against separatism or also known as the, the law to um, reinforce Republican values which touches on a lot of kind of culture wars stuff and has been used, you know, supposedly supposed to, you know, act against separatist um, communities of, of extreme Muslims, you know, this kind of phantom of this extreme terrorist Muslim who are obviously in, you know, that's the kind of in interior enemy of France, but it actually has been used to shut down um, departments dealing in, in decolonial thought and, um, you know, even LGBTQI stuff, like anything that's seen as kind of, um, and it's also been used to, for example, um, against uh, ultra leftists or extreme leftists who've, in fact, ironically fought in Rojava against ISIS, um, also had the same kind of laws, similar law, not this one, but applied to them. So it's, so this project is now, um, you know, this law is now passed. Um, and there's meanwhile a kind of frenzy around these things. So the Blanquet, the a minister, just held an anti-woke conference and the, 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 it was at the Sorbonne and the, the conference said, you know, it's against, Wokeism, also known as decolonial thought, also known as co cancel culture. So they've got their kind of knickers in a twist, and this is the kind of <laughs> the, state, the, the state position is like you can't say anything anymore. Meanwhile, let's just like close down any group of young Algerians who are trying to like commemorate the the war for what it was, and like this is also a lot. A lot of it's also to do with you know the way that Macron is trying to recuperate the image of the Algerian war. To his own benefit and he held this kind of council of of young uh sort of like descendants from all sides of the algerian war to have some kind of uh commemoration but then he actually kicked out um groups uh for being like too communitarian or too separatist so yeah it goes pretty far <laughs> there's been a kind of a uh in, in, in response or you know kind of related to perhaps this uh, kind of ongoing series of, of terrorist attacks. There's been um, uh, a lot of people put under police protection in France, right? Like this is a this is quite a common uh, feature of. Zemmour was put under police protection for several kind of periods. Like, how does he relate to the police and security culture? Does he uh, is he overwhelmingly uncritically supportive of that, or is there a kind of a um, is there a more nuanced position there at all? Yeah, I think he's saying the same um, thing as as a. Uh as Darmanin, who's this minister under Macron, uh, which is to say that the police's job has become more dangerous, uh, they're less and less respected and, and they need to be given extra powers to be able to be safe 
And so this is a kind of gaslighting of anyone who's suffering police violence, because obviously we've been in a, you know, we were in a state of emergency after the Bataclan terrorist attacks and, and many, many uh, Muslims were put under house arrest and raided and like the figures of that were completely crazy. So um, has that now lapsed? The state of emergency has the state of emergency now lapsed because I know it was extended several times. Yeah, it was extended several times and has now lapsed. But like with the sanitary pass measures or the vaccine pass measures, all these states of emergency um, are. I mean, you know, a gambon will say like they're not the they're not the exception, they're the rule, but even juridically, they're like impossible to dismantle. Like there are lots of jurists who are constantly on the radio being like, I don't know how I'll ever get out of of this kind of, so I'm not sure to what extent it's really, really, really elapsed, but uh, it's it's very unclear. Certainly every time I used to check, we were still in it, but um, yeah, it's, I think it's officially now elapsed, yeah. (laughs) But yeah, um, yeah, this kind of so that he's got the same, the same um, painting the police as victims, and he says that he would re- he would he, they've been um, demoted to the status of guards, and he wants to raise them back up to the status of hunters. Is what he says. Hunters. In, in what he sees as a coming civil war. That's what he said on radio. Um, the other day, and it, I mean, he says all kinds of nonsense. He says, you know, police. Police are constantly that every single day of their lives they have Molotov cocktails thrown at them. Um, the level of violence that they now receive because of the presence of Muslim is like Muslims is is much higher than before because we always had delinquency, but this is different than delinquency, and so um, so we really have to you know bolster their powers to, to for for um, I don't know like an excusable violence, which all I can understand is that he wants to give them the right to kill. And to be um, exonerated afterwards, so he's yeah. This coming civil war, if it comes, seems that it would probably also come from the far right, right? Uh, there was this clique of um, French colonels, I think it was, or, or French officers, right, who submitted this this open letter that was like, you know, if 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 Macron does not kind of crack down on on the Muslims, there will be uh, you know some sort of uprising like, does is a more what's the more's position on this like how, how does he relate to this um completely insane uh development um i don't know i mean i don't know how he relates to those generals uh particularly but it's funny because they um well they were all anonymous because you're not allowed to do such thing if you're a general so it was like a you know it was signed by some generals and retired generals who i guess gave their names um, but yeah, that reminded me of uh, the OAS, like the Organisation de l'Armée Secrète, which uh, Le Pen, Jean-Marie Le Pen was in and who made an attempt on the life of de Gaulle, like this kind of putsch or coup. Yeah. Um, but I mean, he's constantly talking about civil war. The things he says are very, very dangerous. And so for that reason, he's been indicted for... Um, uh, incitement to like he's been um, charged with an incitement to race racial hatred and I think he's been charged three times but he's been in and out of court many more times and <laughs> honestly listening to him on the radio it's like so inflammatory and dangerous what he says uh, if he's taking these such extreme positions and talking about civil war and saying the police must be hunted how is he 
how has he managed to? I suppose is how has he managed to like get this position within French media, like where he's like the go-to guy. He gets on these massive network radio networks and TV. Is it just because of his history? He's been doing this since the nineties, or does the French media, similarly to Trump, you know, they get a big boost when he's on? What, what's going on? Um, yeah, I think in the early days he was kind of like a he was very much like a seen as a sort of an, an intellectual, like an outsider who you would bring on. And I think I think unfortunately people didn't take seriously that he was um, dangerous. I mean, he's quite funny. Uh, you know, he can be funny. I, I don't think what he's saying is very funny, but he's he's clever. And so I think people thought he was a bit of a buffoon in the same way that they think. Um, Johnson or Trump or buffoons, you know, he's, he's, you might want him on your TV show to, to be, you know, he's a polemicist, so he's quite useful to have on a television show in terms of polarizing debate and making it kind of reveal it, what's at stake and so on. And he, he also has a quite strange career because he's a journalist for like a, a you know, right-wing conservative, uh, newspaper the Figaro and he kind of works his way up and he meanwhile writes a few novels like one curiously is called like the Red Dandy and it's about um Ferdinand Lassalle who's like you know corresponded with Marx and like just, and then he and then he kind of comes out as this culture wars darling and in 2006 and writes the book um Le Premier Sex which is actually a bestseller followed by a trilogy of bestsellers and so he's kind of constantly on tv talking about his books and promoting them in book tours and saying the wrong thing on tv and getting into court and he's kind of he's sort of almost gaining the status of an anti-hero and and i think now in the context of the election it's true that the journalists who are often attacked by him because he's got this he's got this similar kind of he's less of a He's less whiny about it than Trump, but he certainly positions himself a kind against a kind of media swamp, but he takes it in a much more dignified manner. And so these journalists just are kind of overwhelmed by these sound bites um, of atrocious things that he's saying, and they they kind of just repeat them and don't um, critique them. So it's a strange situation because he doesn't have enough signatures to run, but he actually has a lot more attention than many other candidates. And in the context of an election where there's basically not really any left representation, although Mélenchon seems to be doing slightly better, but there's, for example, it's the death of the Socialist Party over here. There's no, um, they're, they're doing worse than all the far right candidates. And, and so he's getting like a lot of attention despite not, you know, a bit like, and I think that's, that's, in that sense, he's quite similar to someone like Farage, right, who managed to achieve great wonders with Brexit, despite not having any formal representation in Parliament. And that's quite smart. You know, he's like a media personality. Could you quickly explain how the, this electoral process works? Like, what are this, who is signing the signatures for them to get into the, to the presidential election? Oh my god! Uh, I, th <laughs> I think. Um, I think like, oh no! I didn't know. I didn't realize this would be the difficult one. I don't think it's like any. You, you can't just get signatures from anyone. I think it's like mayors and okay. um, and like maybe deputies, right? Okay. So, so you have to have the kind of the go ahead from from um, five hundred uh, such people, and then you can and he. He's, you know, he's doing this campaign 
And then if he has those that amount of signatures, he can stand for election. And then there's two um, two uh, rounds. What do you call it? The tour. There's two rounds. And so um, often with extreme right people standing in the election, um, people often don't take it so seriously, and or they take it seriously, but the the terms in which people talk are like you know, Marine Le Pen would never get voted in in the second tour, so that would give whoever the other candidate was a chance of winning. And that's kind of how Macron won, because there was actually a very, very low turnout. But because Marine Le Pen um, was the other candidate in the end, those who would have, apart from people who really didn't want to vote between these two characters, like, you know, the people who really didn't want Le Pen and might have voted, maybe Mélenchon voted for Macron. And But there's a lot of... Uh, white votes would you call it there's a lot of um, spoiled ballots in france maybe the turnout would be even lower than last time that's interesting why do you think that is well because last time i think there was some sort of like uh there was there was some real fear about marine le pen getting in and i think that now that people have lived through uh these years of austerity, extremely um, intensified police violence, um, and so on from Macron, who's supposed to be a moderate candidate. The critique that people were originally making between Macron and Le Pen. So for example, you know, people who I was talking to were pretty, you know, clever. They were like, well, I wouldn't even vote for Macron in the context of Macron Le Pen because his corporatism will bring about fascism anyway or not necessarily fascism but will be, we'll be bad for migrants will be this and that right and so now i think that's possibly even more clear so maybe there'll be maybe there'll be a lower turnout but i wonder what that would be if, if someone like zamora ever got to the second tour which seems unlikely maybe the turnout would be higher against him this this two-round election thing is is seemingly very clearly designed to keep out extremist candidates, right? That seems like the point of the, the having the two rounds. And maybe, maybe when it was it was it was begun as a, as a process, it was it was communist candidates they were trying to keep out rather than the, the far right. But I don't know about that. Maybe, um, but it seems like it does also give the far right a much greater um, power to influence French electoral politics overall, even if they don't actually win, right? Because it allows people to vote kind of more or less uh, uh, do protest votes in the in the first round which which perhaps raises the uh, the, st- the the numbers for the far right so I was kind of wondering do you think that there is a do you think there will be a French far right electoral success or is there a French far right cultural transformation that will happen uh, partially because of the you know a- quite active uh, political kind of intellectual scene in France partially because of this um, two 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 turn uh, two step electoral process and perhaps partially because of Zemmour's own books and, and work and so on is is it is there a danger that France becomes a kind of a a country that has a nominally centrist or like kind of conventionally right-wing president and at the same time has essentially a fascist culture that's quite like kind of um substantial yeah no, that's interesting I hadn't thought about it like that but I think yeah definitely and also just among the 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 right because you know paradoxically although the reason that Zemmour has success is because some parts of the right have gone more to the center within the within the progress of the campaigns you know 
like I said, Valérie Pécresse is talking about the great replacement on TV. And, and so they're all trying to get votes back from Zamor. It's funny that because as I wrote in my article, Marine Le Pen's new, um, new uh, strategy is to lean into the reason that her voters are going towards Zamor, which is kind of about misogyny and, um, and anti-gay rights stuff. And so she's trying to talk about herself as the, the women's candidate. So she's got a kind of more um, liberal um, strategy within that, small L liberal. But um, I think that the kinds of things that have like propelled somebody like Zamor to prominence um, possibly already make for a more far right culture in France. Like he's part of a whole kind of culture which thrives on the internet and on, on these kind of populist TV shows. So the, his, you know, the person who comes before him is, is Alain Soral, who writes a kind of like pickup artist type book and he has a website and you can contact him and he's like, and there's lots of YouTubers and like there's a, there's a like young culture of far right, um, kind of alt-right stuff through these comedians like um, Papacito and um, uh, Giudone and stuff like that, you know. And so I think there's a kind of broad, broadly, I mean, it's still probably quite extreme and, and, and minor, but yeah. It's also pan-European as well. Like lots of these groups are related to like wider generation identity uh, stuff. And so I don't know to what extent the echo that they have in France is to do with them being like pan-European and having lots of supporters in like Austria or whatever, but yeah. But the thing about Zamora is it's not just these younger kind of subculture really, subculture elements. He also has, he's very canny because, uh, canny or sincere, I don't know, but like the, you know, the right has kind of reformed around this Manif Portus, so the movement against gay marriage. And so the specific deputies joining him now are ones from the former R from the RN who were who are more Catholic, more conservative, and really against like so th this kind of issue of being against gay marriage has kind of recomposed, um, and is it's the true social movement in a sense. It's like a successful right wing social movement that's like recomposed um, the different parties across the Republican to the extreme right. I think so. You you kind of said that he doesn't really have any chance of winning in this election. Um, he, he probably wouldn't get the signatures to even be on the on the ticket. Where does he go after? Well, maybe he will, but where does he go after this election? Like, if he's not going to win it, how does he kind of develop this party that he's founded? Or what? Yeah, what does he do? I don't know. Maybe I mean he might. This article that I read in Le Monde said he was going to try and be a prime minister under Pécresse. Maybe, or maybe um, he'll be able to continue building on the like discontentment um, from further right elements who don't get the candy they want in the election and kind of build through that um, for the next election, I don't know, but, or he seems quite well connected in, in like other countries as well. He just went to like Armenia. He was supposed to be received in London, but like it was canceled or something, but he seems to know like the leaders of UKIP and, um, I don't know how ambitious he is. He he presents himself as someone who really didn't want to get involved in politics, but he's been watching from a distance for many years and he's absolutely compelled to um, come in now. 
he's this kind of, you know, he's a journalist who just can't bear to watch anymore. And um, he, um, you know, it's like he, uh, he he's almost kind of designing, he's, it, he's presenting himself a bit like either Pétain or de Gaulle, who are both military leaders who came in at a time of crisis. Um, and I think that's how he'd like to be seen. But it's funny because he he actually got out of his own military service, so he's hardly a military man. But he kind of manages to kind of put this across. But this is this is another similarity with Trump, right? Is that Trump kind of you know dodged the draft for the Vietnam War, but nevertheless is like I know more about the war than the generals, and managed to by talking tough essentially make himself seem like he was the kind of the greatest champion for um, the U.S. military. Um, this combination of Patin and De Gaulle is uh, quite extraordinary, right? Um, these are two contradictory figures in French public life, uh, often seen as such. Um, how is it that he's able to combine the the seeming kind of inheritance of both of them? Uh, yeah, I think it's a bit like how um, if you go to Russia, you can see in, in the souvenir in the souvenir shops, you can see a, a head of like Lenin, Stalin, and Putin in the same yeah. Um, yeah. and Putin often makes a big deal about saving certain like war memorials and um, like communist memorials because he's managing to recuperate like a contradictory history into the like great national myth. So I think it's like Zamor's general move, but more specifically, he's, um, there's this kind of, it, it's really, really ingenious because, um, so Pétain is the leader of, Fishy France, and he's put in power because he had like won the Bet Battle of Verdun, and so he's deemed to be. When the government like runs away to Bordeaux and France is under occupation, they like appoint him partly because he's old, so they think maybe they can manipulate him. He's like eighty, but also because he's seen as a kind of like hero, and everyone knows he's really extreme right. But they put him in power, and meanwhile, De Gaulle is like the. The leader of free france in in london and so there's this far-right myth about the sword and the shield so that Pétain was this the shield protecting the french population um, from the nazi occupation which is completely untrue because he collaborated obviously with the nazis and that de gaulle was the sword preparing the attacks on the germans so that they were somehow compatible and so that is an existent far-right myth and Zamor leans into this by citing this completely bullshit history um, that Pétain had somehow protected French French Jews, sending immigrant Ashkenazi Jews to the camps, which is like disgusting, obviously. Yeah. And luckily, historians like Robert Paxton show that this is not true. And but so it's a kind of there's this weird like conspiracy theory there. And so like lots of the far right actually rejected this myth because they hated de Gaulle when he gets elected in uh, 62 and he comes in saying um, I'll come back uh, and be elected if you give me this new republic because in the last republic the, the president doesn't really have much power so he wants this very strong republic and so then that he comes in because there's the Algerian war and he kind of ends the Algerian war and the far right don't want that because they want a colonized Algeria and many of them are Pied Noir and Le Pen, um, Jean-Marie Le Pen is actually a torturer from from um, the Algerian war and like he's been, re you know, people know that because they recognize him from his like actual knife that has a swastika on it and so on. So therefore uh, Le Pen would 
support um, Petain and and not de Gaulle. And so he comes out after the this saying like, fuck de Gaulle, I love Petain. And it's the wrong moment for French, French people in general, because you can't say that about de Gaulle at that moment. He's like a big hero. And, and so now that Le Pen is kind of closer to dying, people kind of forgetting that he was part of this terrorist group, the Organisation de l'Armée Secrète, who actually tried to take um, de Gaulle's life. And, and so it's actually easier for, for Zemmour to make the new far-right myth into appreciating them both and pushing on this idea, like I said just before, about them both being these kind of heroic military generals who come in to save a failed democracy and restore like a strong power in a moment of, of crisis. And so that, so they are similar in some ways, but he manages to um, do this quite ingeniously, I think. Yeah. I want to ask about the Brussels convoy, which you've been attending <laughs> as a participant. So um, tell us about the Brussels convoy um, and, and what is so significant about it. And uh, what, what did you what did you find when you got there? Um, well, I went to the so that there have been these uh, convoys in France, which are um, a kind of um, to copy the protests in Ottawa against the vaccine uh, mandate or pass. And um, I had I had some hope because, um, you know, we had the Gilets Jaunes in, in France uh, in 2018 and lots of people said from the beginning, oh, it's a bit weird and it's maybe fascist. And I actually went to interview Gilets Jaunes and I went to the protest and it, it wasn't um, it wasn't uh, exclusively fascist and actually fascists were in quite a minority, although the reticence of the left to make a, an intervention into the movement meant that there was a lot of space for fascist representation. So I saw the call out for the convoy and thought that it was probably a lot of gilets jaunes and they transformed a lot of the anti-vax um, demands into more squarely social demands about like things like purchasing power and the, the like raising raising salaries and also about the price of gas and and um, energy you know like people are experiencing like huge precarization and proletarianization so I was quite hopeful um, and it was hard to get a handle on it the convoy came tried to come to Paris but lots of them couldn't get through so there was just a kind of gilet jaunish march in in the Champs Elysees and there wasn't much chance to talk to anyone and um, so I think the real way to find out about what's going on is probably to go in a convoy and talk to people. So I, I have no idea. And then I went to Brussels, but arrived um, very, very late. And so there were only a very small amount of people left. And so I really don't think it's necessarily representative of the whole movement. And I think I need to do more research, but everyone I spoke to um, um, was very, like the only thing they were interested in was the vaccine, which they pretty much unanimously think think is is part of a kind of global genocide um, plan, and so I don't. It's probably not in in you know in a way like these people are, were just a very. It was like I spoke to ten people out of two hundred who were left, and I think thousands have participated in the convoy. So I don't think they're representative of the convoys per se. But in terms of thinking about like modern conspiracy theories, it was very interesting. And I, I, 
I'm not sure if they are, I'm not sure if we could say they're fascists because they are so confused. And um, certainly some of the things they say are very fascist, but then in the next phrase, they say something else that's like the opposite. And so I found just a lot of confusion. Um, and they weren't interested in like the economy or it wasn't a kind of, because in the Gilets Jaunes, you found like a kind of conspiracy theories about finance, but you could nonetheless see that it was an attempt to explain like conditions of immiseration. Whereas these, these are like the most wild, like end of the world, life and death, devils are ruling us, um, children are getting vaccinated, kind of QAnon uh, thing. And so I actually believe that the people I met, well, actually I asked them if they'd been involved in the Gilets Jaunes and they said no. So it's kind of different composition of people. Um, it blew my mind, yeah. <laughs> it's this weird mix of ideologies as something the counter extremism industry in the UK has been talking about a lot recently with a kind of this rise of this mixed ideology that you can't really define and yet produces extremism is, is something that really confuses a lot of those kind of people it sounds like it has kind of conspiritualist uh, dimensions right conspiracy plus um, spirituality dimensions right um, you were saying you were saying earlier that someone was like we must kind of live in in love and light and so on but also therefore we must oppose the vaccine and so on this is a yeah she she had um she had just let left her husband because he'd vaccinated her children um because in france you just oh need the, you just need the consent of one parent so she was she was living through i think some like personal devastation about separating from her husband and like her whole family and so in the in the kind of solidarity that these kind of convoys produce, I think she was finding a way to like thematize love and evil um, because for her, the, the this disagreement about vaccines and about the, the, the fact we have QR codes to go to the bar and so on um, has caused division in her family. And it's this idea of social distancing and separating people and so in the convoy, she was saying, we dance, we love each other. Like she was having a very personal moment that was like explained in uh, political terms or like, you know, these kind of terms. So it's funny because these, yeah, these people were like completely exalted. And I think they'd lived through a real moment of solidarity with each other. They'd been traveling across France. People had opened up their homes to them. They'd given them food. They'd been cheered on uh, like, through every small town and like people had opened up like, you know, gymnasiums and dancing halls to them. And so they'd had this, like, they really came to Paris thinking like, we're gonna take Paris. And then uh, no one in Paris really knew they were coming. So there's this big split between this kind of, yeah, this like metropole and this kind of like quite rural, rural experience of exclusion and, and like, so it's kind of, yeah, it's almost like a anthropological phenomenon or something, but wild. And the guy that I spoke to at the end was definitely talking about a kind of great replacement. Uh, it was very confused, but on the one hand, he feels that the elites through this like Davos great reset and stuff have a plan of genocide because they talk in Malthusian terms about like limited resources. So he's personally afraid of that. And on the other hand, he thinks about a great replacement coming from below. So he's pro migrants, but he wants them to assimilate. And he believes that the, the, the level of migration is too high all at once and then that's replacing um you know uh european identity and so complete fascist theory right but also 
but kind of phrased in like a kind of a, almost like a moderate center right kind of policy prescription right we should slightly slow down the rate of immigration there should be better assimilation kind of mechanisms and this replaces european identity like these are this is a real strange combination i've not heard that being used on that part of the center kind of the, the normal conventional right before yeah and also i think it's mirrored by the fact that um, a lot of them have like classic uh kind of uh, conspiracy theories about uh, prominent jews so like rothschilds etc and identify themselves with uh, Jews in the Second World War. That's a major point of reference and kind of negationism that they engage in. So there's this kind of above below confusion. Um, yeah, conspiracy theories are just not coherent anymore. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <it's>, uh, <laughs> what can you do? You know? um, if only we were back in those simpler times, you know? Yeah. But um, I asked who he would vote for, and actually it wasn't Zamor or anyone I'd ever heard of. He was going to vote for this uh, policeman who's holding all his rallies outside of police stations and who's anti-vax. So, yeah, it was a very sobering experience. Uh, yeah, um, negationism, if people are not aware, is Holocaust denial. Oh, yeah. Um, last question I have. Uh, what forces exist in France to counter Zamor? Uh, um... Well, in the classical in the classical bourgeois sense, there are courtrooms because he's being taken yeah. to court. That doesn't seem to help very much. Um, with there have there has been one really big mobilization against Zamor, which took the form of just a, a march, but it was it was good. Like it, at least it shows that contrary to the way that the media just distorts his popularity, you know, he doesn't have the signatures, but he's very prominent. Um, that on the streets there was a presence against Zemmour that was in Paris and there have been many across um, France and Nantes and lots of cities so of course there's the classic like you know street demonstrations and then there was this kind of uh, that he did this rally at Villepinte and I think it was a bit of a mess because it was it was originally supposed to be in the Parc uh, de, de la Villette and there was a counter demonstration uh, called by the CGT who were going to march from Barbès, where I am right now, to the to the rally. And the Antifa said, "No, don't don't march all the way here. Come straight here." In small groups, people got scared. He moved his meeting to way out in the suburbs next to the airport, and the CGT still insisted on doing the march, which was now nowhere near where the thing was. So that meant that small groups of um, anti-far and anti-racist protesters from like SOS racism ended up uh, stuck in this really horrible brawl. So yeah, there are demonstrations against Samoa, but it's, it seems quite dangerous. Um, <laughs> and otherwise, like I said, there isn't, an, in terms of like the election, there isn't a, a candidate. I hope that there's just like good, um, critique that like dampens him down and um doesn't give him too much attention but like properly critiques his ideas but i'm a bit pessimistic yeah i mean i like i say i think even if he doesn't um win the election i think lots of his ideas are already present in um in what macron does and in what other politicians hope to do so yeah this is always one of the kind of the the most difficult ambivalences about opposing the far right is that you discover that the <laughs> the the neoliberals who you uh, also oppose are just doing the same thing i hope that um uh the groups who are being repressed by the separatist law will be able to continue to organize and really like publish reports on what they're going through and that 
seeing as it is kind of a culture war, I hope that the narrative will one day like shift or maybe that would help. It's, it's difficult to know because it's, it's like with Zamor, it's like all talk, you know, and. Thank you very much, uh, Rona. Um, go and read Soft Boys in France, feminist perspective on the rise of Eric Zamor. It's in the conversation list. Uh, there'll be a link in the show notes, as I said. Um, yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you can go over to Patreon, where we now have a whole bunch of more premium episodes and essays and other things like that. We're also starting a book club for people who want to get more into this stuff. You can read along with us. We'll talk about it. We'll have regular Zoom calls. It'll be great fun. And on the higher tier, we'll even send you a copy of our two books when they drop. That's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what. All the support we get means a lot to us and it really does help us grow this project. And thanks a lot for listening again and I'll see you very soon. What's up, y'all? I'm Pearson, host of Coffee with Comrades. Coffee with Comrades is rooted in militant joy. Our hope is to cultivate a warm and inviting atmosphere, like walking into your favorite coffee shop to sit down with some of your close friends and share a heart-to-heart conversation. New episodes premiere every Tuesday, so be sure to smash that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. We are proud to be a part of the Channel Zero Network. Yeah,